Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. That's what they say. You know what? I've, I've heard people when they talk about it, they say, you know that Andy Nelson? He is a well-lozenged guy. <laughs> they do say that. They do. I've that, seen that. that. I've seen that. They've actually been prepping that for your headstone. I was going to say. Andy Nelson, he was well-lozenged. I hope so. I hope that really does. <laughs> <laughs> happy Thanksgiving, Andrew. Yes, happy Thanksgiving to you. I don't mean to date the show at all. Uh, date her? <laughs> I hardly knew her. <laughs> oh. What? Um, uh, but and and you're you're so uh, you know U.S. centric also. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for welcoming the rest of the world. To I know. The show. Thank you. Thank you, world. Especially because we're gonna because our our cold open here is all about uh, our our international participation. Hmm. How excited we are about our international listeners. And I, yeah, but but the reason I'm saying this is because Happy Thanksgiving. Because in the U.S., it is now Thanksgiving, and. As you know, you probably know, even on international news, what Thanksgiving is, is we're giving thanks for uh, all of the shopping that we're going to do on Friday. <laughs> this country has become nonsense. Are you not just, I mean, I know you're a Black Friday guy, right? You know, I, I, I have been a Black Friday guy in the past. Now I tend to be more a um, Black Friday uh, internet shopper. Yes. <laughs> a little easier. We still go out because it's it's a lot... Uh, it is nice to go out without the kids and and just get all of the Christmas shopping done for them. Yeah. You just leave them with a Santa and like Macy's? Yes. Just leave just, the kids for a couple hours. <laughs> put them in line. You wait here, kids. If we'll Santa... Get, if it gets to you, just smile real pretty. Ask for a truck. <laughs> Ho, ho, ho. I saw, uh, saw Catching Fire today. Oh. Uh, hopefully you didn't catch fire. Because that would be a bad experience. I'm not, I'm not sure that one worked. No. Here's the thing. What? Please you, tell me. You, you, you saw Catching Fire. Yeah. And I saw Frozen. So it's just very interesting <laughs> spectrum that we were covering there. That is very interesting. I like it. <laughs> I uh, I did see Catching Fire, and I know you're not a you weren't a huge fan of the first one, right? Of the Hunger Games. No. Yeah. Uh, I was. I thought this one was better than the Hunger Games. That's what everybody says. Yeah. This was this was a uh, and and I would not say it was just a little better. Uh, I thought it was um, substantially better. Yeah. Um, and uh, I thought everybody did a great job. I particularly. Uh, I just, I bet Jennifer Lawrence, you know, I think she's done, I, you know what I think it is? I know her better now, and uh, it makes me like her performance in this film better. Uh, after seeing her um, in so many other films between the last and this one. I don't think I knew her very well when I first saw Hunger Games. And winning awards. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and particularly, you know, Silver Linings Playbook. and you know, Yeah. So it, it's just, she's, she's 
I think, uh, quite a talent. Uh, so it was, it was a beautiful spectacle. I did see it in IMAX, and true to form, uh, that switch, uh, when she is raised up into the arena and the screen transitions uh, from... Uh, uh, regular, regular to, IMAX. to IMAX is uh, is stunning. If you're if you're aware of it, it is uh, it is a stunning transition. They they play that really well, uh, and it is a great moment in the film when that happens. You just you, so it's you know, not it doesn't compare to like you know the Dark Knight where it's jumping back and forth throughout the film. I'm on the record. I didn't like that. That yeah, made me, I remember. That made me crazy. And this was this was not. This was a really elegant transition, and the the entire balance of the film is in is in IMAX. There's no switching back and forth, and and they really picked the right segment too. Obviously, this is the big arena um, uh, arena games, and uh, it's it's beautiful. It was a beautiful production. Hmm. So really, well, I think I, it's I think it's worth checking out. We were actually going to see it this past on, weekend on Thanksgiving. We our, our babysitter got sick, so we couldn't uh, we couldn't go. It's always no this this past weekend. Okay, not Thanksgiving weekend. Your babysitter is preemptively sick. Yes. Anyway, so I quite liked it, and uh, and I uh, you know it was fine. I took my daughter. We had a we had a great time. It was a you know it was a father daughter date. So we're good. That kind of movie. Well, I took my daughter and my son and my wife to Frozen, and we had a wonderful time. We I caught your post on Facebook. You now. liked this Frozen. Yeah, it was. You know, I'm a big Disney fan. I uh, uh, particularly their animated films, and uh, this was the first film that they've they had put out in uh, forever that I really didn't see. I saw the teaser trailer, and that's it. I didn't see any marketing of any kind for this other than that, and so I really had no idea what to expect with this film. And I went in kind of blind and had so much fun with it. I really enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the way they shaped the story. And uh, the music was great. The, uh, just everything about it really worked well for me. So, um, yeah, I, I had a great time with it. I think it's a, a great addition to the, uh, the animated classics Disney library. Fantastic. Wasn't there some yeah. controversy about this movie? Some, about how they, uh, some comment about how they draw female characters in this movie? Did you read about that? I didn't read about that, oh, but uh, they did. I did notice how large their eyes were. It it almost seemed more abnormally large than like anime eyes. Like they yeah. were really big eyes. <laughs> they <were> like notably, <laughs> they like are not alien. missing a thing. <laughs> they they must be related to uh, the aliens that came down and stopped by Area Fifty One before they went up to the snowy country. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, genetics. Let's tell the people where we're from, should we? Yeah. I'm from, Col- I'm from Colorado Springs. I originally grew up. <laughs> I was born in Oklahoma, but I didn't spend a long l- time there. A little too far back there, buddy. Oh, I thought this was a biopic. <laughs> This is the next real, next real podcast. My name is Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson, and uh, we spoil movies, old movies. We'd like you to come listen to us uh, talk about movies. We appreciate your participation everywhere that there can be participation, and there are a lot of places you can participate. If you want to just check out the movies, head over to uh, our flick chart list. Uh, just search for our, the next real on flick chart or on Letterboxd, and on Letterboxd you can even see the movies that are coming up. So check out our watch list over on Letterboxd, uh, and you can do that. We invite you to subscribe 
subscribe to the show, uh, probably the best way to listen to the show, subscribe to the show either in iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio or your uh, your podcatcher of choice, wherever fine podcast podcasts are served, you can find the next reel. And uh, and and uh, don't miss a, an episode. We appreciate you uh, hanging out and listening. If you want to participate. Lots of ways to do that, too. Head over to Facebook.com slash The Next Reel. You can join the conversation there. Or for you Google Plus user, uh, Google.com slash plus The Next Reel podcast. Google.com slash plus The Next Reel podcast. And uh, uh, we are, uh, we're, we're starting to hang out over there. That's still pretty new. But we do invite you to do that. I like it so much better than Facebook. I wish more people were like actively using it because it's just good. <laughs> uh, we're also on Twitter, obviously, uh, twitter.com slash the next reel. Okay, now, for uh, we just have a little bit of follow-up. Uh, first of all, on Google+, we have a comment about somebody uh, from, from a, a, a new friend of the show, Stephen, who writes uh, in a comment uh, on our Hobbit Desolation of Smaug, and I should say, the comment on the uh, Desolation of Smaug was, and this was from the Next Real account, uh, each, day we, uh, each day we get closer to 48 frames of awesome per second. Here's a little playground to explore. And it's a Middle Earth, the Hobbit kind of chrome experiment thing. And the comment from Steven is, really? Some more speedy up action and fake looking CGI? Really surprised since you all seem to have a problem with the first film. <laughs> and I would like to go on the record as saying... You are right. And this, <laughs> therein, herein lies the rub that we, all of us involved in the next reel, who are posting in multiple places as the next reel, are often not in agreement on things. And he who holds the pen makes the <laughs> public opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in this case, some of us were a little bit jarred. Some of us, meaning me, I think, we're pretty jarred by 48 frames per second, but I am, I am going into it with an open mind. But you are right, Stephen. You are absolutely right. I did have a problem with that first film. I think, I think it was a lot bit jarred. <laughs> yeah. It was very jarred. I, I will never see 48 frames per second again. No, ma'am. I'm no, going to do sir. it. I am totally going to do it. And, uh, but I would, I would say I, I guarantee you that the blog whisperer, uh, uh, the good and kindly Steve Sarmento, uh, is going to be seeing it 48 frames per second. He'll take every extra frame you can get. That's Give right. him, you want You don't want your frames? Give them to Steve. He'll take them. That's right. Uh, and, uh, and so that's the, uh, that's the story on, on that. But, Stephen, thank you so much for listening and, and uh, listening to this. I believe you are a new listener, and you're very kind uh, to, to write in and, and uh, join the conversation. Yes, and he also uh, kindly posted over on iTunes, which is fantastic. Although it's the UK iTunes, and I had to, he he sent a, a note on Facebook, and uh, I found out about this comment that he uh, posted there. And thanks to you, you figured out how to figure out how <laughs> how to find these posts on iTunes in other countries. But we now know how. So he writes, "It's not bad. It's really really good." Which is great. It's a heck of an opener. It no, is. it's not Just... bad. <laughs> <laughs> Just discovered this, and it's now my favorite podcast. Both hosts are witty and pleasant to listen to. Thank you very much. The films they cover are all pretty great. I'm slowly working my way through their back catalog and loving it. I'll be sad when I catch up. So and will then we. You just start all over again. <laughs> <laughs> back to square one. Mm. 
Yes, Raiders. Uh, so thank you very much, Stephen. Do we have any other uh, any other uh, comments we need to follow up on there? Um, I'm your, checking, more on but, your list? but before I uh, before I check, I also I, do want to uh, say that on top of that, and actually, no, there are no other comments to. Now, one other way to follow us is over on Instagram. You can catch up with Andy's fantastic hashtag guess the movie hashtag pony prize. Andy, tell the people about uh, give the people the update. Yeah, we you know over on Instagram every day we're posting an image from a movie, and uh, over the course of the week we'll end up posting seven ish images from a particular movie, and you have the opportunity to guess what movie that is. Just follow us over on Instagram.com slash the next reel. And if you know what it is, be the first one to say what it is, and you will be entered to win our pony prize, which we're compiling a pile of gifts. And uh, one day far in the future, we will send those to the winner. Hopefully it won't be that far in the future. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, one day. Uh, but it's coming. This week, um, it was. Uh, it took a while. I really had to start putting up some what I think are pretty obvious images, i.e., I. actors' faces, iconic <laughs> <laughs> actors' faces, to get you people. Did. To you got out pretty what this close up? <laughs> I, yes, I did. Well, you know, it is a Sergio Leone movie. It's pretty easy to get these incredible close-ups. And you know, unfortunately, <laughs> the joy of Instagram is it's you know a square. It's a one by one frame, <laughs> as opposed to a two point three five to one <laughs> giant widescreen uh, image. So yeah, I have this, to cut quite a bit. This last image of <laughs> Henry Fonda. <laughs> I know it looks like his. It looks like I peeled the skin off his face. Yeah, right. Laid it up on the lens. <laughs> It, it just doesn't look that that appealing, but yes. But Robot Gremlin did finally get it, and um, also coincidentally, that is our friend, our new friend, Stephen Smart. So, oh, fantastic! So, way to go, Stephen! Congratulations, you are entered to win our pony prize. Oh, that's very good. Very good. I can't wait to see what they win. I can't either. I can't either. <sighs> and with that, let's talk trailers. <laughs> My trailer is, uh, I you know, I would not have expected me to choose this trailer this week, and probably <laughs> not for the reason you think I am. Uh, I am, <laughs> I was. This is one of those things where you see a trailer for something, and it's just you can't stop looking at it. It's a, it's like a train wreck of a, of a thing. Uh, it, I'm talking about Sabotage, the 2014 film from writer director David Ayer. Ayer. Ayer, Ayer. Uh, David Ayer, you know David Ayer from such uh, action uh, tent poles as Training Day, Fast and the Furious, Harsh Crimes, End of Watch in 2012. Uh, guy's been around. He knows how to do guns and cars. Really knows how to do guns and cars. He could make a a, a fun uh, uh, kind of crime action romp. It's just that's what he does. And this one stars uh, a. A great cast of people who look great as thugs and villains, right? Terrence Howard, and, Joe Manganiello, Josh Holloway, Sam Worthington. What is going on with Sam Worthington in this movie? I didn't even recognize him. Right? And totally out of context, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and it's this is the this that's what makes this 
trailer the high jump, low ceiling experience that you're going to have with this. It's like everything looks great in terms of a big testosterone heavy, uh, intense crime, DEA crime thing. And then the governor comes in and I'm just, I'm just, I fall right out of it. It's like, I, he <laughs> just doesn't, it's, he does not look like he fits in these movies anymore. He doesn't fit. Uh, so I, I have a real problem with it. it comes out a- April 11, 2014. I'm choosing this only to mark the calendar. This is going to be a terrible movie. And I think <laughs> it's going to be in, it's going to be in spite of people doing good work in a testosterone intense, heavy action film. I got to say, I was really impressed with the fact that everyone in the trailer, including Olivia Williams and uh, however you say her name, Marella Enos, yeah, are like completely just kicking butt in this thing. I know. It made me so excited to see them just going crazy in here. And yeah, I, I am very curious to see this. Uh, tell me you didn't get that same feeling. Tell me I, I'm not alone here. It's, you know, he just is a little, I, I don't want to say past his prime. I just, I, I, I think that, uh, I don't know, it just seems a little, it seemed a little weird to me. I, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see it, though. Mm. If it's going to be something that feels like it works or does it feel like, you know, somebody who's should have been retired? Here's the thing. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you it's hard not to compare uh, Schwarzenegger to Stallone, right? Right. Uh, and I... I, I think Stallone's latest efforts, I haven't seen a lot of them, right? I haven't seen a lot of his most recent stuff. But I have greater faith in them uh, because he always had more of—he he was always a better actor. Well, I don't know if that's— Yeah, no, he was—okay, seriously, if I, you're going to stack would... rank Schwarzenegger and Stallone? I have a hard time watching Stallone. I would much rather watch Schwarzenegger. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, we're starting off on the wrong foot, uh, you and me. Uh, Seriously. Oh, man. All right. That's where I stand on on this. He plays John Breacher Wharton in Sabotage 2014. April. Mark your calendars. April 11, 2014. Schwarzenegger. There you go. It's just too bad because this is the rest of these. Uh, the rest of the, I mean, it's just a lot of butt kicking in this movie, and it looks like good, gritty butt kicking. It does. All right. Enough out of me. What's yours? I'll, I'll I see can't, it. I'm, I'll I'm really surprised. I was actually surprised at your trailer. I know. I was too. Well, and and in the spirit of my trailer, I, I think the reason I picked this trailer is because of the commercial that was released uh, <laughs> earlier in the week of Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, doing the splits between the two semis. Uh, and that because of that, I was inspired to pick this uh, trailer, which is Welcome to the Jungle, which... <laughs> looks really funny i I mean it you know you have a completely over-the-top jean-claude van damme as this uh, you know a a guy who runs a those tropical island company retreats to kind of bring the company closer together (laughs) like an extreme (laughs) ropes course extreme ropes course and everything goes wrong in it and it just looks really funny and i just the the scene when he kind of just (laughs) does his little karate move on the guy I mean, I just couldn't stop laughing. So that's why I picked it. And in honor of that, I actually am, just so you know, doing the splits between the two two office chairs for this entire episode. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, I I like to be a giver. I I don't want to just... 
pick this and and not to uh, you know not put give, in the effort give back right that's right that's did right. you did we talk about jcbd yeah long ago did we do a show on it no we yeah. didn't talk talk about it oh. but you've mentioned it in the past i because you you've seen it right i have not it's one of those ones oh, man, that kind of that's the conversation I, I've already yeah, been I'll, mad at you about this. Yes, you have. You JCBD. Have. And I said, oh, I'll go watch it. Two, and and you I, never did because you don't care about things I say. I this was uh, Mabruk al-Mekri, Mek, uh, writer and director of JCVD 2008. This was John Claude Van Damme playing a fictionalized version of himself, and it was terrific. Yeah. Yeah. It's better now that I know how you feel about me. <laughs> All right. Well, the interesting thing about this one is it's Rob Meltzer is coming out uh, it's really kind of it looks like one of his first big projects i mean he did a jewish christmas story back in 97 and then a couple like tv movies and a short called i am stamos and uh and, and this <laughs> yeah, the, the i am stamos a dark comedy about a character actor whose wish to be a leading man comes true when he magically begins to photograph as john stamos provoking the unholy wrath of john stamos that's fantastic what a fun idea for a little short film. So anyway, I, it looks fun. I think that it would be a fun watch. I don't know if it's a, something I would pay for in the theater, but it does look fun to watch. So that's Welcome to the Jungle. Limited release in the U.S. February 7th. We're sort of both doing the geriatric action film. Geriatric action comedy, in your case. Yeah, I know. They're both kind of uh, making their little comebacks. That may, be, that may, have, to be, may have to be a series next year. It, it's all thanks to the Expendables, yeah. That's Expendables right. in red. Keep elderly action stars working. That's right. Shall <laughs> we talk? Shall we talk about this movie tonight? Let's. I know you're thrilled to death. I'm not. I don't know if you notice. I've been stalling. Like anything I can do not to talk about this movie. <laughs> and that's the show, everybody. Tonight. Have a good night. <laughs> <laughs> We're continuing our series on foreign language films uh, with the uh, uh, oddly foreign uh, <laughs> <laughs> Diving Bell and the Butterfly 2007, directed by Julian Schnabel, uh, written by Ronald Harwood, uh, and or the based on the book, the original uh, the memoir by Jean-Dominique Bobby. And, um, all right, go ahead. I can't, I mean, and I don't even know what to, I can't I even talk about this movie so much. Yeah. And I, I find it so interesting that you find it, uh, like on the level of Schindler's list. I can't, I can watch this once because it's great. But after that, I never want to see it again. I totally don't feel that when I watch this movie, this movie to me is such an inspiration and an uplifting film. And it gives me so much, uh, yeah, just joy about life and and everything else. I, I, I find this an amazing uh, experience. And every time I've watched it, it really uh, just shines through as this story that is celebrating life in in just coming through from one of the most horrible situations a person can be put into. And I I think I first saw this film... I missed it in the theaters, and I think I ended up watching it. It's, it got nominated for a few Oscars. And it was right around the time when, I believe it was when the Oscars were being announced, and Sean Young, uh, the <laughs> ever so uh, just laughable Sean Young, uh, mocked Julian Schnabel after he was nominated for Best Director. And she's just like, who's that? <laughs> 
Do you remember that? Do you yes. remember like the I had totally <laughs> forgotten that. And uh. she, she just got the wrath of everybody and I think essentially signed her own contract to officially leave Hollywood and not be welcomed back after that moment. Wow. Yeah, that was this film. Good old uh, Julian, who who was nominated for Best Director for this film, although the film wasn't. It's one of those weird films because it's foreign language, but because one of the companies producing it was an American company, it's not eligible for Best Foreign Language Film. And because it's foreign language, people don't really want to put it in as as Best Picture because it's a little, you know, yeah. it, it happens, but it's it's not that frequent. And well, so... yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about the kind of the genetic history of this film. It's uh, it, it's kind of interesting how it how it came to be, and and uh, uh, I, you know, I <laughs> I think this film really capitalizes one of my great fears in just life, and and that is you know this condition known as locked in syndrome, and and that is uh, just this this. A sense of horrible claustrophobia that I get, this nightmarish sort of claustrophobia. This is a deeply personal section of the show. It's therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that is a great fear of mine. And so this film is all about that, right? Yeah. And I, I think you are absolutely right. And on watching the film again, I, and I put it off to the very last minute. I, like, I just finished watching the film like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> uh, and, um, I, you know, it, Watching it again, I, I see what you mean, and I think I was able uh, on this, and this is only the second time that I've watched it all the way through, obviously. Um, I, I was able to kind of take a step back and see the the overall structure of the film and the the, the just the way each act kind of progresses, uh, both visually uh, and, and dramatically, structurally, in terms of us, of how we get to know, um, uh, you know, Mr. Bubby, uh, which is really quite magical and i i think you're i think you're right that that there is kind of an uplifting sense once you get past the uh uh just the horror of the first third of the film um you know for me uh i i think it is a gorgeous story i think it's a it is a a beautiful story and and a story of such incredible uh commitment like it just that that sort of at its its purest sort of most raw human commitment um to to one another uh, that that I find uh, deeply rewarding, kind of in that middle section of the film when when you know you see you know where where so many of these characters could just give up, uh, and and yet they they keep they keep coming back and they keep coming back to help and to 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 rebuild uh, this person who can't rebuild on his own. So I, I think it is I think it's deeply magical. I think it is. Um, uh, the cinematography of this really is a standout. Um, it, it, the the way it was shot, the sort of um, the the imposed limitations uh, on the the screen, I think, really uh, make this film shine. The way it it sort of challenges you to be in this space, as long as it challenges you to be in this space, is is risky and rewarding in the same vein. And I I I, I do I. I deeply love it. I, I, but, but I can't watch it, you know, that much. Yeah. So no, I hear you. It, it does. It, it, it pushes the audience to um, the limits of testing their their uh, comfortableness with being in this situation because it does put you first person. You are for you know, essentially as you're watching this film, you are Jean Doe, this character. Uh, watching 
as he is locked in and, and as he is basically just laying there, he can only move his eye. You are, you know, he can communicate with his eye by blinking and he can look around and that's the only part of his body that's really functioning. Everything else is just doesn't work. He has to, uh, you know, I, he has to be fed with tubes. He has to breathe with a, a tube, you know, just everything is all, uh, machinery because he just is completely paralyzed except for his eye and the brilliance of putting the camera into his head and you're hearing his thoughts and you're seeing everything he sees and the people that you're looking at don't hear any of these thoughts I mean it, it was really a, an ingenious way to make a film and the fact that you don't even step out of that first person POV for like the first 15 to 20 minutes. I mean, that really does put you to the test of, of getting a sense as to what this claustrophobia is like wanting to say something and nobody can hear you. It's, I mean, it's frightening it. And you know, it certainly can feed on those fears of being stuck in a place. I, I can see why you would be you know, terrified of this. It's, it's, it's nightmarish being stuck in a situation where you are trying to get something across to people and no one can hear you. It, it is. And, and I, I, I'm not sure where, I, where to, to start on this because I think all these elements, one of the, the, the things that, are, that I find so compelling about this film is the way uh, the dramatic elements and the visual elements tie together so perfectly, right? I mean, so much of where, as you say, the camera is placed and where we are as represented by the, the lens um, is uh, directly related to um, to this character's awakening, and and I find that uh, I, I found that sort of the most compelling lesson of this film this time around. That that what we learn in through flashback, particularly through the the second and third acts of the film, what we learn about Jean Dominique Bobby is uh, that he was, you know, he was a player. He was the uh, former editor or publisher of, of French L uh, magazine. And, um, you know, we learn early on that he'd had a stroke. They sort of give away the punchline in the first 10 minutes. Had well, a... uh, yeah, I mean, you wake up. <laughs> you wake up and you're Literally. in his head, yeah. You, the movie starts uh, with him waking up. Right. To, He's like, already locked happened. in, yeah. He, like, he has no idea. Like, he, he doesn't even remember. And, and, it, and that's what I thought was interesting is it waits until the end of the film to reveal the actual moment because he doesn't remember that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so our experience starts out very claustrophobic. You know, we start out with him in his head, right? Uh, and as the film moves forward through the second and third act, we, bec- we, we move outside of his body, mm-hmm. uh, and we meet him in the second act in particular after that first sort of 25 minutes. We meet him, his physical self, right? We, we start in his head, his cerebral self, and we meet his physical self when we see kind of what his, what his body looks like as he's being wheeled down the the uh, you know down the hallway and he sees the first reflections of himself and and at, at that point you know we as as our spatial awareness begins to grow his psychological awareness begins to grow and he starts we start seeing him put together these pieces of of you know what mattered in his old life through flashback by what uh, ends up mattering to him uh, in his in his you know current present uh, based on the people who come to him and who come to be a part of his life and the stories that, that he surrounds himself uh, by. And I found that um, his journey of, of broadening awareness, even as his world became so small, uh, I, I found that 
really a, a powerful sort of psychovisual metaphor. It works uh, very effectively the way that it plays. I mean, I agree with you. It's um, it, it's such a it's a tricky story to to adapt. I mean. I, I think you have to give. I mean, I haven't read the book. I don't know if you've read the book or not. Uh, I'm guessing not, considering your your aversion to the story. No, I bought the book and then burned it. <laughs> Just as a symbol, symbolic statement of my discomfort. <laughs> but um, my understanding is Ronald Harwood, when um, after uh, Kathleen Kennedy, one of the producers, when uh, she optioned it and asked Ronald Harwood, and I believe he was just coming off of his Oscar win for The Pianist, um, she asked him to adapt it, and he was looking at it, and he spent a while trying to figure out how to adapt this, and he, he tried a few different versions. He couldn't figure it out, and he's, he was at a point where he was like ready to give her her money back and say, I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how to adapt this. It's about a guy who's laying there. He cannot move. There's nothing about him that is mobile in any way. And then all of a sudden it struck him to go into that, uh, you know, the inside. And uh, the way that you were able to play with imagination and memory. And as the film progresses, you know, and you start seeing that blend of his real world, his imagined world, and his memory. Because that's really the, the world that he's, he can play in. And that paired with that personal connection that we have with all of these people in his life... Uh, as they come and address the camera as they're speaking to him, whether it's his, uh, the, you know, as he says, the mother of his children or, you know, his dear friends or, you know, just the nurses, uh, the doctors, all these people, you've get that incredibly intimate relationship that, I mean, it, it almost is uncomfortable a little bit. You, you feel, I, I don't know, for me, it heightens the sense of emotion in everything because I feel so much more connected to, to everyone in those moments. Well, and and I absolutely agree. And and what I find is so uh, there's some wonderful humor and and deep sadness in in the way people uh, connect with him uh, in this space and the the discomfort with which people sort of approach this. You know, how do you talk to somebody like this in this state? Uh, and, you know, and it starts uh, with his friend that the, they swapped the the seats on the plane, and the friend was you know taken captive taken hostage uh, in, what was it, Beirut? Beirut, yeah. And, There's an awkward friendship. Yeah, very awkward friendship. He swapped, d- d- you know, do me a favor, swap out this, uh, this seat so I can take your flight, and then the flight gets hijacked and he ends up being, uh, you know, taken hostage. And uh, so he comes and tells this story uh, about how he was kept, kept hostage uh, to this guy who is now sort of hostage in his own body, right? And and that doesn't stop. You know, I, actually, I think the first one is the doctor who sews his eyelid shut, right? Who's telling him this story about how he was on vacation and and right. and he's talking about how you know, um, I don't remember the the specific story all of a sudden, but it was you know it was essentially that same thing. How hard things are when you know for him, and then we have how hard it is for the for for the guy who was held hostage, and then it it's just sort of the the. That narrative of of discomfort it, it really is is comes to a climax with uh, Max von Sydow, who plays his father, um, you know, calling to talk about how uh, what an interesting parallel it is, you know, um, using this as a way to avoid talking about this other sort of uncomfortable um, 
how uncomfortable it is being uh, the father of somebody you can't really talk to and being at right. the end of his own life. Like there, the, uh, he is just such a phenomenal uh, portrayal of of this character. But he uses this, you know, isn't it interesting how w- what a parallel path we're on? You're trapped inside your own body, and I can't leave my apartment. <laughs> we're yeah. so similar. <laughs> uh, it's just there is such. Uh, and, and, and to the credit of Matthew Amalric, um, there is such, uh, you know, you really read that grief in his in his eye uh, as he's listening to his father over the phone tell the story, um, you know, that, that you read that subtext so clearly. It's the, it's one of the most beautiful scenes in the film, and it's it's so powerful. I, I mean, I got to give Matthew just so much credit because— you know, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, I, I heard him talking about acting in this film and he said, you know, it's, it's really hard acting when you cannot move a single muscle. I mean, he would basically have to lay there and he would like tense up his whole body and he, he wouldn't move anything. And one eye had a patch over it and then his lip was like glued open a little bit yeah. and his, he had like a, a thing in his cheek and something in his nose and he had a special contact in his good eye, his quote good eye, uh, that made it look all bloodshot and everything. And, and then he would have to lay there and be completely still and not move anything except for his eye. And... It, to act that way where you cannot do anything, I mean, not even a, a little twitch or anything, and be completely still and uh, react the way he does to that phone call. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's amazing uh, and powerful, and uh, it does really show through. It really rings the emotion through that, you know, this is, I could totally read all of the, the sub, subtext going on in that conversation and, and just the emotion as he's, as his one eye is reacting to that phone call. Absolutely. It's powerful. It was, it's extremely powerful. And I think that, you know, the, the intensity that he brings to that role, particularly as you, as the, the uh, frequency of flashbacks begins to, you know, it really increases in this third act as you get to know more and more about Bobby and his life. And, um, and, and you're, you start pairing the, the sort of, uh, the important elements again of his prior life uh, with uh, his closer to sort of end of life handling as a as uh, you know as he is locked in and um, you know he reaches the end of his um, you know the end of the book process you know the end of writing this book and and you know we should talk about this this is the story if we haven't made it clear of him writing his memoir through eye blinks yeah. And I mean, uh, it's mind-boggling. It, just it is hearing someone say that mind-boggling. So this is the the story of of working with his uh, speech language therapist. Uh, you know, going through the uh, the French uh, frequency alphabet and building each word letter by letter. And and uh, uh, my understanding is it it took uh, roughly two hundred thousand blinks and <laughs> uh, about two minutes to build each word as he wrote his novel or his memoir through the through the uh, the hand of his his translator his this interlocutor uh and uh, it was it it is amazing to and and uh, you know to to kind of wrap that up he ends up dying you know 3 days after the book is published um uh and uh you know that that sort of ends his journey uh, and, and it's just it ends up being a that the intensity of the thing, the intensity that he brings to his end of life experience um, as as he is read to 
you know, by his by you know his loved ones and and his new sort of deepest relationship. Um, and as the 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 scene just gets increasingly white as he yeah. passes, um, it, it it's as as beautiful and uncomfortable as I think the opening of the scene is. I mean, it's a very sort of cyclical path uh, that he is on and, and uh, uh, the sort of birth to death to birth um, uh, cycle uh, yeah. is is very present in this film. It's beautiful. And, and then it goes to the glaciers, which is really interesting. They come in uh, partway through the film. You see all these amazing shots of yeah. of just these weirdly very dirty glaciers falling into very dirty water. Uh, but it's just interesting the way the ice splits and falls in, and then at the end, it's all played in reverse, and you see these these giant you know blocks of ice like almost just leaping out of the water and attaching themselves to the uh, to the glaciers and uh, and to the icebergs. And it's funny because Schnabel actually said. He's unsure what the glaciers actually mean, but he, but to him, it felt like the key to the film. There's something about that being reconnected to things at the end that he felt really symbolized kind of, you know, Jean Doe's re- rebirth into the world. You know, he, he's kind of escaped this diving bell that he was in. You know, his butterfly was his imagination and his memory. And now through being able to write this book, he was able to kind of reconnect himself back into the world that he was so abruptly broken off from. That's so. interesting. I, you know, I, uh, I, I'm sure deep down I probably thought of that, but I certainly didn't think of it when I was looking at it. Yeah. Isn't that funny? That is funny. I'm laughing on the inside. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so uh, we've talked about Matthew Amalric. Uh, the uh, w- wow, you know, the other performances. His his um, essentially his physical therapist, his his SLP, uh, his doctor, and his uh, his writer, his translator. Right. Yeah. Uh, all it, wonderful performances. Yeah, he's and his and, and you know <laughs> the mother of his children. Right, right, right. Uh, Emmanuel, you know, Celine, Emmanuel Seigne, uh, Roman Polanski's wife. Who uh, you know, I she, for some reason there's something about her that I find so beautiful in this film, and it's the same beauty that um, in uh, the in um, uh, the Ninth Gate that Roman Polanski directed back in '99. That terrified me. <laughs> like she, she played that so nicely, uh, you know, in that film, and and her beauty as you know, I, I don't know, I can't remember. She's basically like the form of Satan walking the earth or something like that. Yeah, there is something so much scarier about her in that film, and in this film, I found that just so much more attractive. And um, I really like her in this film, and my heart goes just totally goes out to her in this film. And the situation with her and the kids and him. Um, interestingly, as kind of a, a weird side note, the girlfriend, oddly, is uh, that he left this, uh, the mother of his children, who he never actually married, which I guess is why we call her that. Um, she has a much bigger part in the film, and the girlfriend that he left her for is completely non-existent in the film except for toward the end. You know, we kind of see her in a flashback. But in in reality, the mother of his children hardly ever came to visit. 
And it was the girlfriend that was the one who was always at the hospital and always um, sitting with him and was there, you know, through his death. And the... I guess the reason that the script ended up getting kind of written this way and kind of swapped was because his story rights and everything after he died went to his children. And I don't fully understand the the reasoning there, but it sounds like, I don't know, out of respect for the children or something like that, they kind of changed the story a little bit and made it so the mother was kind of the more... Uh, you know, the one connected to him still, and the girlfriend was just more non-existent. Well, and there was that ex- that that sort of just shattering sequence uh, oh, on yeah. where, where the mother of his children is translating, uh, is interpreting a conversation uh, between Mr. Bobby and the girlfriend over the phone. Yeah, uh, right. and, translating and I, his blinks to to say what he's saying. To right. say what he's saying, and and she is is you know the girlfriend is over the phone trying to say. Uh, you know, I I I love you and I miss you and and I I would be there, but I couldn't be there. You know, again in the context of the film, uh, and the 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 wife ha- or the mother has to sit there and just and listen to this, and eventually has to she steps out of the room. But you know, I bring up that sequence because I think it it um, it captures what you're talking about that sort of the gift of Emmanuel Seigny yeah. of of being sort of beautiful and shattered. Yeah, uh, in in a uh, just a an incredibly powerful uh, fashion in this in that sequence in particular. Oh, absolutely, and, and and you can still see like there's there's jealousy in there, there's anger, and just all yeah. of that emotion. She plays so well. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, but interestingly, the this the girlfriend actually uh, after I think a year after the movie came out, she ended up releasing her own book, kind of because I <laughs> there were quite a few people in. Bobby's life, who are kind of offended with the film, the way that they portrayed her. So she now has her own book. Um, we can put a link to that in the show notes, as well as his book, just in case people are interested. But it's called the, uh, let's see, La First Veuve. I don't know my French very well, but something like that, at, which I guess is The False Widow. Oh. And so that that is her version of this story. Um, yeah, so I, I'm... I think it's only in French right now. I don't think it has had a translation. So if you speak French and read French and you're interested, we'll have a link in the show notes for that too. The False Widow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I have to say my favorite of all the women in this is is uh, the nurse, Henriette, or Henrietta, mm-hmm. Marie-José Cross, uh, who I just totally fall in love with every time I watch this film. She's just... Just had like the way she smiles and the way she speaks to him. I just, I really love it. Yeah, she's. Uh, <laughs> it it's a pretty special relationship that that I think they they develop and and the way she sort of develops that protective kind of nature, um, uh, with him is is and around him is is pretty special. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's it's, and it's, and she's just mesmerizing. Yes. Like the, the the way, and I think this is another way. They just the, the uh, uh, another sort of point on the cinematography, and we should say uh, this is um, Janusz Kaminski, mm-hmm. um, who we've talked about before uh, in some capacity. What was it? Come on, bring it back. Well, you keep talking. I'll tell you in a minute. All right, all right. Uh, because it was Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull was, I think, the first time oh, we yeah. talked about. It. 
it was, uh, in any case, uh, what I think is uh, really powerful about uh, this, um, you know, the first act of the film and the way the camera is is in his head, um, it, it puts uh, such focus on, or, or I think it sets you at attention, let's say that. I found myself sitting at attention uh, for eyes, right? Yeah. Because you have to work to see somebody's face because they don't move the camera uh, since you know, he can't move, right? You're in his head. He can't move his eyes. And so you are, you know, people are moving in and out of frame as they're getting used to, you know, moving in to look at his eyes. But that means when she moves in to say, can you see me? She's kind of leaning down, um, her head's tilted down, her eyes are tilted up. It's that, it's, it's that beauty shot, uh, the focus of on her eyeballs. Uh, right. And, and it is, it's just a, uh, one of those stunning um, images. Uh, yeah, and you know the same for a, any of these characters, but they really make a focus of capturing uh, kind of that relationship. And there's some great humor uh, around you know his inner voice uh, talking about what it's like to be surrounded by these women uh, who keep leaning in and leaning over him, and he can't move. You know, he can't do anything. And the you know when the physical therapist is teaching him how to um, how to use his tongue, how to swallow. <laughs> she, she's doing this demonstration, this sort of, uh, you know, in, in any other sort of non-physical therapies, you know, circumstance would be this lusty tongue move. Uh, right. And and he's having to watch this and completely trapped and can't move. It is, it's uh, <laughs> a really sort of beautiful, sexy kind of torture. It um, is. So it's it's a great, and, and it adds, adds a little bit of levity to what is otherwise a... Um, you know, a dark sequence. Well, I think it speaks to Bobby's sense of humor, at least yeah. the way that is portrayed in the film. Right. I, I think it acknowledged that, you know, he, he, even though he was stuck in this situation, he still was able to laugh at things and laugh at his situation and laugh at, you know, just things that were going on around him. Right, right. So um, before we move on, I do want to, since you were talking specifically about the camera, two things that I wanted to bring up about that, because I do find it very uh, fascinating the way that they shot this film. One, because of this first person nature of it, I mean, it's essentially the cameraman lying there and everybody is acting into the lens as if it is uh, Jean Doe. And so they're all, they have no benefit of actually seeing an actor laying there. I guess on the camera, they actually put a small little kind of uh, model of just the center of his face. So they had something to reference as they were looking at him. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I mean, you know, the character is a person who can't move. So it's not like they have to worry about reactions from this person. But they're essentially just lay, just acting with a camera lens. And so... I find that even more um, powerful when I see these actors giving amazing performances that when you think about it, it's really just them reacting uh, or coming up with these emotional moments with a camera lens and, and a cameraman who's just laying there in the bed. And I find that really stunning. And then what they did is they had uh, Matthew, he was actually there the whole time they were filming this he was offset in a box with a little video assist monitor basically watching what was being filmed and schnabel basically had him wired to record all of his audio and then he just let uh matthew 
say whatever he wanted to say, kind of just react to, I mean, there was some scripted stuff, but also ad-libbing whatever lines he felt, you know, kind of came naturally to him. And the actors couldn't hear that, but it was just him speaking because that's essentially what locked-in syndrome is. So he really, in a way, was acting as if he was in locked-in syndrome in a box offset where no one could hear him. <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I know. Is such, that's, that's your craft, people. That's, <laughs> that's why... <laughs> that's why they are actors. That is beautiful. I know. It's interesting. The other interesting thing is uh, Janusz Kaminski and Schnabel decided for a lot of this, because of the way when your eyes are moving around and your eye kind of focuses on different things, they opted to use a tilt shift lens, mm-hmm. which is you know kind of a special lens that allows you to focus on a, just a very particular part of the, fra- the frame. And they would they would move it as they were filming, and and so the focus is constantly shifting and moving from one thing to another, and and the way that things move, and and then as the camera is moving, it really reacts as if it's an actual eye kind of looking around, and it just another element that they brought into the cinematography of this that I think really lent itself to creating a much more claustrophobic feel to the story. That's absolutely true. Have you ever shot with a tilt shift lens? I haven't. I haven't. I am curious to, to try it one of these days, but I've never gotten the opportunity. It's they're 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 great. Uh, they're a great tool, but mostly used for you know architecturally uh, architectural photography. They're really designed for you know um, to to realign planes. Right. Uh, and so to use uh, a tilt shift lens in this capacity, it's kind of you know there are companies that make effectively tilt shift you know easy through like Lens Baby is a great. Um, sort of adapter that you can add to or lenses you can add to your to your camera to to um give these great sort of uh effects but to to end up using a, a tilt shift for these really claustrophobic sequences or i should say for these really close-up sequences adds to that sort of claustrophobia that that i think is um it's a really unique look um i i would not have thought of that I, I, I think it's it speaks to the the unique uh, perspective that Schnabel brings to the filmmaking. I mean, he's an artist. He came in to this project as an artist first. I mean, he had done a couple other films before this. I think it was uh, Basquiat and Before Nightfalls mm-hmm. were his his two prior films, and all you know definitely seemed to have stood up to uh, you know the critics and and people really found great art in these films. But he is. An artist. He's a painter first, and that's where he kind of came into being. And I think he brings to it a lot of that avant-garde sensibility, that sense of uh, letting the, um, even in the camera moves, letting the emotion and intuition control things rather than logic all the time. In, in just all the decisions that are made, whether it's camera moves, whether it's the way an actor is portrayed, whether it's the way that he's cutting and the way just using, um, letting Janusz go and use these in-camera superimpositions or whatever it is to help tell the story. It's it's almost like expressionist work. And I love that about the, the way this film feels when I watch it. And yet, right, uh, because, uh, you know, it it is... It is absolutely approachable. Yeah, absolutely. Like that—that is a really important distinction. Like this is, yeah, this is not a. This is a challenging film, but it's challenging because of the approach to the subject matter. 
Yeah, it and, doesn't feel like we're watching a, a Stan Brackage, exactly, you know, Dog Star Man, or something right. that is is much more challenging to watch, and you really have to be in the right space to watch it. Right, right. No, and I, I can, you know, I, I would suggest that it, it as you say, it's Schnabel's, um, it, it's Schnabel's natural sort of visual. Uh, instinct that that makes this such a unique um, picture, but it's it's uh, approachable. It's not standoffish. It's not you know you don't walk out of this thing saying I have no idea what that meant. Right. Uh, it is. It's just beautiful and difficult. Uh, it's a difficult story uh, told in a really beautiful visual fashion. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so the, this film, it, it, I found this really interesting because it's, you know, it's another one where Max von Sydow is, you know, we practically we have a von Sydow series. I know we should have. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it's another one with a bilingual cast. Um, it was originally, uh, it, it's, it was obviously shot in France. Um Shot on location at all the actual locations where things took place. Right. Though it was originally supposed to be produced by Universal Studios, American company, obviously. Uh, It was uh, originally, it's just verified, originally uh, Bobby was supposed to be played by Johnny Depp. I I believe that uh, is the story, yeah. That's... uh... I, I, you know, I love... uh, American films. I, I sometimes, I mean, there are times when... There's a great American film made that takes place in another country where they don't speak English, but it's made in English. Uh, you know, speaking, mentioning Schindler's List earlier. Right. You know, that's it's an amazing film. Uh, this is a film, I, I don't know. I, I think you could have done it all in English, but I don't know. Watching the French version is like, why would they have ever thought of doing this in English? That's it just doesn't exactly make sense. exactly it. That was exactly yeah. my point. Like, why yeah. would this have ever gone that way? And so when Universal stepped out, um, you know, likely uh, the the best outcome for this film was to to return to its roots. Though what I found interesting was that um, you know that the intention Schnabel's intention and Schnabel is is not a French director, right? Um, you know, he's, he's right. He's from Brooklyn. He's from Brooklyn, <laughs> right? And and uh, you know, uh, apparently he learned a bunch of French to to direct this film, but uh, but he is married to uh, a French woman who played the uh, the 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 physical therapist. Right, right. Um, very good point. So he's he uh, really, I think, brought an interesting sensibility to this film. But it is it is a essentially a French movie directed by an American, written by a, uh, a South African. Right. <laughs> uh, a, this is a this is a global film if there ever was one, and uh, you know I think the uh, but it ended up being produced by uh, let's see Pathé and or uh, Canal and Kennedy Marshall mm-hmm. um, and France Three. Yeah. It's, it's uh, so it's a uh, it ends up being um, probably best that Universal didn't get their big mitts into it. Yeah, I, I, that whole thing. It's like one of those moments where it's like. I'm glad that things went the way it did. It it obviously fell into all the right hands to get made. Yeah. I'm sure there could have been a French director and a French company who made this, and it would have been a great film also. But there's something about the artistry that Schnabel or sorry Schnabel brought to the film that I don't know. I I think that that sense of uh, just the the physicality of just all of the moments throughout the film. I I just feel. 100% connected to it every time I watch it. And 
I don't think anyone else would have been able to tell it the right way. I think this is the the way it needed to be told, and I completely love it. Do you uh, you listen to uh, Studio Q? I don't. <sighs> you must with Gian Gomeshi. Nope. He's my favorite. Uh, it's on the afternoons NPR here from two to three. And uh, so Gian Gomeshi has is a he's in Canada. He's up in I think Toronto, and and um, uh, he's got the, he's just he's one of the he's an aspirational interviewer and talk radio up there, and and has this you know global show, and he has his YouTube channel with all of these like sixteen hundred of his hour long interviews, uh, video interviews up on his YouTube channel, and a great one. The reason I bring this up is a great one. You get 55 minutes with uh, Gian Gomeshi and Julian Schnabel. Uh, and we'll put links to that in the show notes. show notes. If you want to get to know uh, director Schnabel a little bit better, this is a fantastic interview uh, to watch. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Schnabel's, and- Schnabel's an interesting person to listen to. He's a very passionate person. He He clearly is somebody who's connected to his emotions. He understands uh just the, the the amazing stuff that can be done with art and uh you know i think i i have a, a very deep respect for him he i mean you know he freaking painted one of my favorite red hot chili peppers album covers I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well i did not know this which one did he do uh of course now that you say that i can't remember the name of it but it's uh there it is it's the uh uh, okay. Gosh, what is Come the name on. of the album? Break it down. I'll get back to you on that. Oh, you're killing me. All right. It uh, doesn't have the album name on it. It just says Red Hot Chili Peppers. I can't remember the name of the album. All right. I know. Terrible. Loser. I am. Let's Big we... Fat Loser. Maybe that was the name of the album. How how this movie, uh, how'd it do? Do you get to, did you get numbers on this one? Well, luckily, because it is tied into an American company, I did get the numbers for this film. Um, it did pretty well for itself. This uh, it was made back in 2007. It had a production budget of about 14 million. Domestically, they only gave it three million for uh, the prints and advertising, so not a lot of money to let people in the U.S. know about it. Uh, so total, I, I couldn't find anything internationally, but total I have is 17 million. And then, uh, you know, this thing made domestically only about six million. Um, internationally, it, it fared a lot better, almost seventeen million domestically. So total, and once all the numbers are adjusted, it made about uh, adjusted total gross uh, twenty-five million, just over twenty-five million. So you know, it made its money back. Still, uh, it's 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 in the black, and it's it's not one of our big money makers, but you know it's in there. It's number seventy two on our list. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Not right. not too bad. Not, not too, bad. too bad. Not too yeah. bad. Yeah. Uh, what else do you have to add before we rank this thing? Um, just a couple things. Um, I wanted to run through the uh, the Caesar Awards, the the Oscars for France, the uh, awards of the 33rd Caesar Awards. This film was nominated for seven of them. And it took home, uh, let's see, it was nominated for uh, Best Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Director, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound, and Best Editing. It ended up winning for Best Actor, Matthew Amorik. And it, uh, let's see if it won for anything else. It did not win for cinematography or director or picture. 
or writing or sound. Uh, but it did win for best editing, Juliet Welfling. That's something else. The, the editing of this film, the way that it is cutting back and forth, I think is stellar. In fact, even like the way that, you know, when we're in the first person POV and we see the camera, it's it's like it's blinking, like we're seeing his eye blinks. Right. Sometimes those would be edited eye blinks where they would actually just put a quick little dissolve in, like a, a two or three frame dissolve. Sometimes it was the assistant cameraman with his two fingers just kind of doing a scissor motion in front of the camera. I mean, it's just amazing the sorts of techniques that they ended up using in this film. I love the creativity and the ingenuity that they uh, did and just played with when they made this film. It's just fantastic. So Very that's... Clever. That's, uh, yeah, so best editing, I totally see why it would be uh, winning for that. And it was nominated for four Oscars. I already mentioned uh, best picture here, or sorry, best uh, director here, and then best adapted screenplay, best cinematography, and best editing. But it didn't win any, uh, alas. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say. We, should, we is- should just add really quickly, though, it won a lot of other awards around the world. Like it, it won, it yeah. won it, what, you know, it won Best Director in the Technical Grand Prize at the 60th Cannes Film Festival. Right. Uh, it, I mean, it, it it did it it earned a lot of of uh, uh, mojo around the world. Yeah, it ex- it did receive. You're right. It, it got a lot of accolades all around the world, and it was on many people's top ten lists right. of the year. Right. Um, and, and you know, rightfully so. I think this is one of the most artful films to come out of uh, you know out of cinema in a while, and and I, you know, it's a great film. Um, the last note that I had was uh, the music in this film, aside from a lot of great songs in the film, and I think that's Schnabel just bringing great choices to the film, but uh, Paul Cantillon did the music for the film. Beautiful music all through the film. The interesting thing about uh, Cantillon is that he actually, um, something happened to him. Uh, he was like a violin uh, prodigy as a child. And he actually played at uh, when he was 13 years old. He was just like this big child of, uh, you know, prodigy. Something happened. He had a bicycle accident and left him in a coma. When he came out of the coma a month later, he had forgotten everything. He had to relearn all of his music and start all over again. And it's so he found a connection to this story. And so he he contacted Schnabel's like, I really have to do this film. I, I feel this connection with him. And uh, and he told him his story and, and Schnabel thought that it, would, uh, it, it ended up you know, feeling that it was going to work right for the film. And, uh, and so I just found that really interesting. And I think the music does have this, um, this kind of lushness to it. And it's almost like this classical sense that, uh, that flows throughout the film. But I, I, I don't know. It's just this, this very melodic tone. And I, I don't know. I really like the music in this film. I do too, and I think it's it, it works well with the soundtrack. The score works really well with the soundtrack, particularly the the sequence I think is most powerful is that transition while he is having the stroke in the last ten minutes of the film. Oh yeah, uh, as he's he's in the car with his son, uh, and he he pulls over, and they they it's it, you know it's one of the the key flashbacks in the in right. the film as we we finish the story that we have been learning in just little bits, and the music there is just fantastic as it moves from the the score into La Mer, back into uh, the score. Uh, mm-hmm. Just gorgeous. Yeah. 
it's great stuff and and like and all the ways like uh, another moment that always strikes me is when he's they park him in his wheelchair in front of that uh, beautiful statue of the princess uh, and I can't remember what her story is but somehow tied to that building in history and he he kind of fantasizes that the princess kind of comes up behind him she commands him to speak and so he stands and he starts kissing her and you get this beautiful swell of music and it's this beautiful scene and then all of a sudden it it, it just cuts drastically to silence back to him sitting in his chair because the uh, the nurse has come up to wheel him away. You know, he's, he's stuck in this situation where he can't say, no, 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 not yet. He just has to go wherever they take him. And it's a great way to define that. You have this lush moment and the music is swelling cut right to just dead silence as they pull him away. I mean, it's, it's great the way all that plays out. Let's rank it. Yes, let's do it. Uh, so back over to Flickchart, everybody. Head over to flickchart.com uh, slash the next reel, and you can uh, you can see where we stand on all these uh, all these films that we've been talking about, and and um, uh, grab our our top ten list, top hundred list, see our bottom ten list. You'll you'll love that. Add that to your weekend watch list, uh, and join us in the conversation. Make sure you like us over there, and uh, or whatever the verb of flick chart is flick us flick us at flick chart (laughs) and uh be my flick be my (laughs) and uh and you can you can join us in our our, um ranking festivities yes here we go the diving bell and the butterfly or inside man now i i'm curious how you're going to go throughout this because i mean i think the film I, i think we both agree it's a it's a masterful film however it's not something you've already said that you're going to ever really probably watch again. I'm I'm deeply torn on this because usually we you know usually we talk about it as if you know it's the film we're going to watch again, right? Yeah. I mean that's how we've been doing this all these years, right? And I feel like that would be doing this film a disservice. Uh, yeah. I, I well, and see that's the the interesting nature of flick chart is sometimes it's like. I feel like I have to rank it because it's one I would watch more. And sometimes I feel like, well, I just can't do that because this is clearly the better film. I have to rank it higher than that, at least. Yeah, I mean, for example, in this one, I would rank, I would rank, uh, uh, diving bell, the diving butterfly. bell. Yeah, good. Few. Okay, the diving bell and the butterfly, or the bank job. I likewise would have to go with the diving bell. Yeah, and the butterfly. I, diving bell and the butterfly. Uh, or the sting. No. <laughs> yeah. No. Now this one's now genuinely difficult. Territory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm gonna say the sting on this one. I, I'm gonna have to say the sting too, because yeah. I mean, come on, it's the sting. It's the sting. And and then we've got the French Connection. It's like, oh, geez. Seriously, that's the next one. That's the next one. French Connection. It's gotta be French Connection. Don't mess with Popeye. This this is a good one for you, because I know, uh, and it's two autobiograph or biographical stories: The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, or Moneyball. 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 Why is that even interesting? You know how I love Moneyball. I know. I I know. I know you do. I would go Diving Bell on this one. But how much because would you go? I would Come totally on. go. I would 100% go. The artistry in the making of this film. I mean, Moneyball, don't get me wrong, is an amazingly powerful story. But it's, you know, look at how the film was made. I mean, it's, it's you know, it is an effective film. The Diving Bell of the Butterfly is sheer artistry. Agree to disagree. 
Um, let me see here. Because um, <laughs> here's the thing. I, uh, you know, I'm with you. I love, I, I just, I, I get it. I, I, I get it. But I deeply, deeply love uh, Moneyball. And I've, I have, uh, I, I find the way that story comes together and the way, uh, the, the sort of subtlety with which Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill play their, their, their characters and bringing a, a baseball story that is, Approaching baseball in a way that it, that no other film has has achieved for me, um, I, I find that really terrific. Um, so I'm I'm looking at the, the flick chart. I'm trying to I'm trying to see what's going to come next because <laughs> I want to know if I should give a, give this. I should continue to fight. Uh, all right. All right, I'm going to give it to you on for art's sake. <laughs> for but art's just sake. know that I this you I have we we've we've swapped a marker. <laughs> uh, oh, I know the diving bell, the butterfly, or being John Malkovich. <laughs> this is actually really hard. I'm interested <laughs> in where you go with this. This is hard. This is really hard because I think. Being John Malkovich is equally just a unique piece of cinema. Hmm. Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, I would still go Diving Bell. Really? Yeah, because just because of the, the feeling I, I have at the end of it, I just feel so uplifted at the end of Diving Bell. And because of the Max von Sydow uh, phone conversation scene. I mean, I definitely give you Diving Bell. I'm just deeply surprised that you didn't. I know. I, this is because Malkovich is kind of your thing. I, I, I like those movies. What can I say? The Diving Bell and the Butterfly or Prisoners? Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's got to be Diving Bell. There you go. All right, there you go. Number 23, right below French Connection. <laughs> uh, wow. It's a good spot. Good. 23 out of 122. Yeah, that's not bad. That's pretty good. That is bad. pretty good. Okay, where do we go? Uh, we're still in our foreign films. Oh, uh, and series. What? Oh, by the way. Yeah. The album is called By the Way. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, no. What? Uh, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, next, we're uh, heading on over to Germany, and we're going to watch Run Lola Run. Mm. Which? Uh, Lola Rent. Lola Rent. I do love this movie. I do too. I haven't seen it in a while, so this, I'm excited to watch it again. This one's easier to watch for me. <laughs> There's no eyelids eye being claustrophobic. Not quite yes. claustrophobic. I'm very excited to watch this film. Uh, excellent. So this will. Uh, this is. This is the. Uh, is this the the apex, the pinnacle of our? Um, Lola will be yes. Yeah, Lola, uh, and then uh, it's all downhill from there. Yes, it is. Although we've got a, a, a very hefty movie <laughs> toward the end. Yeah, talk about that Jeez. running time. That's right. He, he's a bit of a monster. <laughs> I, I started it already because I think it's going to take me a week to get through it. <laughs> so, uh, very, looking forward to that. Uh, any other news for the people? I, I don't think so. I think, I we're, think good. we're good. Yeah. Let's be done with this thing. All right, I can finally get off of these two chairs, man. I tell you. Oh yeah, you totally van damned those chairs. I did. I did. 
Oh, but I held it. You held it. I'm a real man. I didn't man. hear any, any cracking or <laughs> ripping. And I'm not talking like this. I got to go to bed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.